Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Welcome to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ken Crippen, and I'm the founder and lead instructor at the Football Learning Academy. Today, our special guest is Pro Football Hall of Fame selector Clark Judge. Clark is a writer, co-host of the I Test for Two podcast with fellow Hall of Fame selector Ira Kaufman, and now runs the Talk of Fame 2 website. The page for this podcast has Clark's website and social media links for you to follow his amazing work. For our Pro Football History Nugget of the Week, I will dive deeper into the backgrounds of the people that Clark and I mentioned throughout this interview, so you're not going to want to miss that. Now let's get to the interview. I'd like to welcome Clark Judge to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. How are you doing today, Clark? Fine, Ken. Great to be here. Thank you. Well, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. So today we want to focus on the uh, the Pro Football Hall of Fame and the selection process. So let's start with how long have you been a Pro Football Hall of Fame selector? Uh, 13 meetings. So yeah, 13 years. Okay. So what's it mean to you to be a selector, to be a part of this uh, process to immortalize the greats of the game? I really consider it, to be honest um, with you, the pinnacle of my career. Um, I worked for a long time covering teams and then the NFL. And when I was asked to do this, I didn't realize the importance of it until I got involved. And it they tell you it changes lives. And when you're involved, you realize it, it really does. Uh, once you get to know some of these guys and, and the impact it has on their life um, and their families' lives and the lives of uh, all those around them, you realize the importance of your position. And being in that room is something extraordinary you know, because of the dialogue that goes on and what you realize you're, you're doing and um, the impact it has um, and to be directly involved and actually to, to realize that you're making a change. And I've been involved in a couple of situations where I really felt that the dialogue that I was included in had an impact on the vote that's meaningful. That's really meaningful. And as I said, when you see the impact it has on the players themselves or the coaches, scouts, whatever, um, it's it's the pinnacle of my career because I really felt it may put some meaning in it. Whereas before, you know, you're doing a team from year to year to year and you're going, okay, this is sort of a, a routine job. I'm covering a team. I'm kind of uh, being a chronicler of events. But here it's much more than that. You're having an impact on the lives when you're reporting or when you're doing columns, you're simply um, expressing either an opinion of what's happening or you're relaying information about what you just saw. Here you're having a, a, a direct and meaningful impact on the lives of those individuals. Were you you know, campaigning for any players prior to being on the committee itself? I was not. I was not. No, never was. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a big fan of campaigning, to be honest with you. Um, but I understand its meaning, but um, I, I do believe once you get in that room um, that the dialogue is so critical because people who are invested, who have done their homework, 
um, bring things to light that others may not realize. And that's uh, the importance of that. People don't really understand um, what happens behind those closed doors, nor should they, because it's not really a public event. But um, when you're involved, you understand how important it is that at least some of these individuals in that room, and now 50 of us, 50 voters, have done their homework and, and extensively. I mean, some people like Rick Gosden, whom I work with and have worked with for years, Ron Borges and others, um, have done deep dives into the backgrounds of players and bring that to light. And hopefully, um, you know, I and others have too, because we, we go back to some of those people and players that, uh, and individuals, coaches, GMs, that maybe some of the younger voters don't know about um, and, and aren't aware of and hopefully bring their situation to light. Because to me, there's no greater fault for us than having forgotten somebody who's worthy. And I think that's happened in, in situations where people have fallen through the cracks and hopefully um, it's people who are um, invested in, in that process, who understand the meaning of it and, and understand some of those guys who've been left behind um, th that it's, it's imperative of us to, to bring that to light so that they at least have their day in court, if you will, but uh, have their cases heard before the committee and, and aren't forgotten, uh, at least have their cases heard. And if they're, they're not included and they're not elected, so be it, but at least have their cases heard. Mm -hmm. Now, I know Jim Porter uh, was recently named the president of the Hall of Fame, and he's done some things to modify the selection process, mm -hmm. uh, specifically when it comes to the seniors, having three right. seniors per year over the next few years. Uh, and then combining the coaches and contributors category. What are your thoughts on those changes and other changes that Jim's put in place since he uh, came on board? Yeah, I'm, I'm very much in favor of those. I, I'm very much in favor of what Jim's done. Um, he made those shortly after uh, Ira Kaufman, who's a voter, and I talked to him about the senior process and just said how unfair it was. Um, we haven't, we're having one a year now. It used to be one every other year and then two every other year. But um, we felt it was very, it was unfair to, to the seniors because there was a greater pool of Hall of Fame worthy seniors than there were of Hall of Fame worthy coaches and or contributors. And then to his credit, he said, I'm going to take this to the 50 voters at that time, it was 48, I think, then became 49 and, and 50. But I'm going to take it to the voters and see what they think. And Rick Austin's been on the bandwagon for this for a long time. So, so is Ron Borges, Jeff Laywold, other voters um, who are really concerned that we're left leaving some of those seniors behind and that we should have maybe done a better job, but the Hall should have done a better job with the Centennial uh, class than it did of getting some of those pre-modern seniors into Canton. And so he took it to the the, the committee and, and um, this, the board of selectors said, we think there should be more. There should be at least two. That was the hope. And he said, well, why not three? <laughs> we didn't think that was feasible. We said, sure, three would work. Three would mm -hmm. work, but um, do what you can to expand it. He did. He went from one to three. That was a huge step forward. I know I've heard from some people who feel that's not enough. I mean, it's so much better than what we had. I mean, you have to take these steps for, for what you, you can. I mean, I, there's no guarantee we were going to get anything more than one. And he tripled it in one year. And I know it's an experiment that he says that will last at least three years. He has approval for at least three years, but he hasn't ruled out the possibility of six. And I think that's probably what will happen just listening to him. But the, the, the most important thing about Jim Porter is he's listening to the voters. He's listening to us. And 
that wasn't necessarily the case before. And, and so he did this, the expansion of the seniors at the expense, honestly, of the coaches contributors, which I thought was fair because the pool of, and you know, Ken, you, you look at your history and you look at the history of the, the league as, as much as anyone that, that the, the pool of hall of fame eligible seniors was far greater, far greater than hall of fame eligible coaches and contributors and contributors. And so he understood that and said, what if we reduce that by putting them together and making it one every year? And, and I thought that that's a, that's a fair, that's a fair experiment to try. And I think it's a fair process because again, as you know, there are, I, I think something like Rick has something like 59 um, hall of fame. Uh, I, I'm sorry, all decade players who are eligible, 53 of whom haven't been discussed, something like that. Well, that tells you there's a deep, deep pool of these guys waiting who may never be talked about. And that's unfair. That's really unfair. Whereas the the, the number of coaches uh, and or contributors is, is far fewer. Yeah, there, there are some, but we don't want to suddenly have to do something every year that maybe we, we shouldn't. I mean, when we're doing one coach and one contributor every year, that's a very narrow process. And, it, it, and so you look at the group and honestly um, with the coaches, I, I looked at maybe four, you know, and I thought if we're going to do this for 10 years, are we going to, we're sort of fast forwarding people who don't, I don't think necessarily belong. Same thing with contributors, small group with the players, with the seniors. And again, I defer to you. You can give me 20 off the top of your head who belong. Hall of Fame worthy, but they've been forgotten. And as you know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big supporter of Al Wistert, and 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 I didn't know anything about him until I looked at his case. There's a guy who played nine years. Eight of those nine years, he was an All-Pro, two-time NFL champion, All-Decade. What's he missing? The answer is nothing. If he were eligible today, he'd be a first ballot Hall of Famer. He didn't even make the semifinals last year. I mean, mind-boggling to me, mind-boggling. And yeah, so that's what we're for, trying to do. I whispered for a while, and you know, again, I don't understand why he hasn't been put in. Especially, you know, you look at some of the qualifications of some of the more recent candidates that have come up. I'm like this guy's far exceeds the qualifications of the other people coming up. Why is he being overlooked? The so, reason is he's been forgotten. And that's what I said to Jim. He's been forgotten. He goes, well, that's going to be corrected. I want each and every one of these cases to be heard. And mm-hmm. if they're heard, that's fine. If they're not elected, that's okay. I want them to at least have that chance. And, and that's what he's trying to do. Um, he also wants to implement an uh, in-person meeting from now on. I think that's absolutely imperative. There's no reason we should have Zoom meetings now. There really isn't. Um, and I think he's going to do that for this coming year. Now, certainly some people won't be able to make it. The advantage of Zoom meetings, of course, is you don't have to leave your home, right? Right. But the advantage of the in-person meeting is it's much more informative, provocative. I think people uh, trust each other a lot more. Uh, there, there's no, to me, there's no um, alternative that's better than seeing people face to face. We can say, "Hey, wait a second. This is what I think," and then you and you. There's a real give and take. There was a great give and take several years ago. Um, on the Thai Law Champ Bailey uh, discussion that came up between Ron Boards and Jeff Lagwell. Jeff Lagwell voted from Denver, Ron from New England, and and they were going at it 
back and forth. And you couldn't have had that on a Zoom meeting because Zoom meeting, you know, you hit that button at the bottom, raise your hand and, mm-hmm. okay, no, you're out of turn. Now we can trip in your next. Well, no, I have something to say. That went on then and it, it was so productive and it ended up with both getting elected. Couldn't have happened in a Zoom meeting because we would have had to wait your turn before you come back. And, and Ron and Jeff went toe to toe. And at the end, people said, you know what? They're both worthy. <laughs> we don't have to take one or the other. They're both worthy. And, mm-hmm. and that was that's the advantage. So I think that's going to happen this coming year. He has some other ideas um, that he's working on, but um, I'm trying to get him. And I think he's at least receptive to it. That doesn't mean this is going to happen to say, listen, um, why of these three, why not of these three seniors, wouldn't you mandate maybe for the next three, four or five years, one pre-modern senior of those three mm-hmm. because you're they don't have a chance let's be honest Al Wister doesn't have a chance he, do, he doesn't have a chance same thing with Vernon Wayland not, they don't have a chance nobody knows who they are they don't have anyone speaking for them the people mm-hmm. their their colleagues the guys who watch them they're all gone and so they don't have a chance and and so why couldn't we force the board of selectors to look more deeply into these guys when they pass them off as I don't know who he is, never heard of him. Let's move on. And mm-hmm. and so um, that's at least something that may be considered. I love the idea of it because I think there were some guys who slipped through the cracks, uh, Worcester being one of them, when the Centennial Class of 2020 was elected. You really think that there's an appetite? I mean, you kind of alluded to it a little bit, but an appetite among the voters to even consider the pre-1960 guys, even if it was forced on them? I, mean, I think it's much... divided. I, I think there's a real division there. I know some people don't think we should even have a senior committee. That if you're not mm-hmm. elected in 20 years, adios. I don't believe that. Um, when when this committee was formed way back when, not talking about the particular committee, I'm just talking about the Hall of Fame committee, um, they overlooked some people. And, and so someone could say, why wasn't Al Wister elected? I don't know, but they overlooked some people. And, and because they were overlooked, we've just sort of forgotten them and moved on. And I do, I do, I thought the, I do think the thing, the, uh, the um, uh, job of the Centennial Class Committee Blue Ribbon Panel was to correct those oversights. And in, in my mind, I think in some instances they did. I was glad to see some people, Max Speedy, get elected, for instance. Um, mm-hmm. But I was actually disappointed because I, I, I didn't understand the idea of electing um, modern era players when we talk about a centennial class. I thought we're sort of trying to clean up the, the mess that was left behind. I mean, honestly, I, I, listen, I, I'm on the um, uh, contributor coach committee. I, I, I've been a huge proponent of Buddy Parker when I looked at what Buddy Parker did. And I said, he's a slam dunk. For, he, he is the logical guy for centennial class. He's one of the two guys. He'll be one of the two guys because he should have been in a long time ago. He'll be one of the two guys. Who's the other? We elected two modern era coaches, mm-hmm. one of whom had 80 wins. Now, I'm not trying to knock Jimmy Johnson, but Buddy Parker had more wins. Um, he, he was Jimmy Johnson before Jimmy Johnson, but he was better. Mm-hmm. He was better. I mean, and, and that team he built in 57, Tobin Rowe, you know, he leaves just before the year. That team went to the championship and won. And so essentially – there are four championship teams he's involved with, you know, and Johnson was involved with essentially three. Um, but Johnson won the two championships. Buddy Parker won the two. Then Johnson, you could say, was responsible for the team that won in 1995. Okay, then given three. Well, then mm-hmm. you have 
Buddy Parker with four, with three championships. And he took, and then he lost to um, uh, Paul Brown and in, in, in the, the other. But the fact of the matter is when he was with Detroit, he was four and one against Paul Brown. He was four and one against him. We consider Paul Brown one of the greatest, if not the greatest coach of all time. Mm-hmm. Why can't this guy get a sniff? So he doesn't make it in 2020. And so in 2021, we have Tom Flores. Okay, I understand that. 2022, Dick Vermeil. What is going on? And last year, I thought Buddy Parker would be one of the top two finalists um, in the coach contributor committee. He wasn't. And I'm now beginning to get the feeling that he's one of those who just let drift. And I mentioned to them since 1957, you know how many playoff games the Detroit Lions have won? You know how many they've won? They've Mm -hmm. won one. That's this guy's impact. I've won one. Mm-hmm. That didn't seem to resonate, though. So that's, the room is divided. I mean, that's a long way of saying the room is divided. Some people say, I don't care. You know, let's just move on. He, he got left behind. So be it. We're moving forward. There are others who feel very strongly, not, not a majority, but certainly significant enough that we've now gone to three seniors rather than one, feel strongly that we need to pay attention to some of these guys who we've forgotten or, or left behind. I mean, in particular, the ones that were left out of the finals list in the Blue Ribbon Committee. I mean, you've got 10 guys right there that it seems like their time is over. And, and no, what I thought, Ken, was when those 10 finalists were left out, very simple then. Okay, here's what we do. The next five years, if we have two each year, those 10 finalists are going to be considered. Well, that didn't fly. But the fact of the matter is, yeah, you've got guys – like Amount mentioned Roger Craig, modern era player, okay? Modern era player. Well, I covered the 49ers. didn't cover that team. But from 1980 to 1990s, that, that decade, the 1980s, tell me how many starters from that 49ers offense, that team that won four Super Bowls, how many starters are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame? And the answer is two, Joe Montana and Jerry Rice, except Jerry Rice wasn't there for two of those Super Bowls. So Joe Montana was the entire team. I don't think so. And, 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 and that doesn't, that doesn't work out either. Randy Gratishar is a guy that I'm, I, I, I don't know what's wrong with his resume. I don't know because I'm not on the senior committee. He keeps getting kicked back. I think this will be the year. And I'm talking about 2024. I think this is the year he finally breaks through. He's waited too long. That orange crush defense was great. He was a defensive player of the year. He was the best player on that defense carried that team uh, they, and they've got Louis Wright was great. I mean, they had so many good players and not one is in the pro football hall of fame. Now that's a lot of things that I think we're missing. We've done a lot of things right too, but those are the things that, that concern me about the senior and, and coach contributor votes. Yeah. And I think Gratishar, he was fighting against Holly. He was. So it was probably splitting the votes. I mean, some probably went to bond a little bit. I don't know if any went to Novus at all. Mm-hmm. But you've got those four linebackers that are coming up, and so they're going to split votes. And so none of them end up getting in. You get somebody else, you know, whether it's a Ken Riley, a Joe Klecko, anybody else that comes along. But, you know, I was definitely happy to see that they were able to break that to some extent by getting Howley in last year. And like right. you said, I think this is Gratishar's year. He's going to get in. Who the other two are going to be, I have no idea, but – um, I'm with you that I have very low confidence. It's going to be a, a pre-1960 player. Yeah, I, I have actually no confidence that it'll be that way. Um, and so that's why I think you almost have to legislate it. If you want, 
if you want the committee to actually hear these cases, give me five guys, right? The next five years, give me one each year. Give me five. Can you pick five? You could do it and I could do it. I could do it mm-hmm. right now, but give me five. And, and so you're going to hear about a Vern Llewellyn and Ox Emerson. You're going to hear about a Al Wister. You're going to have to, because mm-hmm. that's what we're charged to do. And now we can move on. Now we can move on. But um, I, I don't have great confidence that that's going to be the case. Well, you know where I fall on this particular, but who do you pick between Llewellyn and Dillwig? Because you know they're both not getting in. Yeah, I I, I know you're a Dillwig fan. Um, I, I, I listened to people I trust in Green Bay, and I asked him that question, and um, they tell me Llewellyn, um, mm-hmm. that um, what he did in the 20s, he retired after 32, I think, but... Um, you know, scored a lot of touchdowns, um, was a, a, a remarkable punter. And the point that of that being that uh, it was a, a game of, um, of of basically ball control and where you were. And then so he was a weapon. But they said he was one that made me he was one of the two greatest punters for three decades, Sammy Bob being the other. But um, he could play both ways. Obviously, most people did back then, but um, had, I think, I think it was something like 51 touchdowns, um, five-time All-Pro, something like that. But anyway, and, and won championships, but and never had a losing season. But the people I trust in there, Cliff Crystal's one, who's the historian for the team. I've asked him that, and he said, Llewellyn's the guy. And and it's a close call. And I, and I know how strong you feel about Dilwick. Um, I'm not knocking Dilwick. I mean, I look at his mm-hmm. case. I mean, God almighty, that's another. You just kind of look at that and go, what's wrong with this? Eight-time All-Pro, six consecutive you know operate um what's wrong with it i don't know except that they just somehow got left behind and and of those two i think dilway probably has the better chance only because a wide receiver's you know numbers and 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 uh position actually resonate more when you're talking about a guy punting the ball and people are what are you kidding me but he was actually a weapon um just because um you know field position and and so i think of those two, Dilwick probably has the better chance. But um, if a gun were pointed in my head, I'd probably go with Llewellyn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I knew Cliff Crystal was a big Llewellyn guy too. And you know, I'm not gonna probably not gonna change anybody's mind with uh, Dilwig, but you know, when you've got a guy with 27 interceptions from a defensive yeah. end position, and then you look at that compared to the other pre-modern era ends that are in the Hall of Fame. Each of them had single digits. You could combine them together and they wouldn't hit double digits. You look at the all pros. You mentioned six-time consecutive consensus all pro. You look at the other three. You you look at Hewitt. You look at Badgro. You look at Miller. Combined, they had five. So you got three Hall of Famers that have less than what Dilwake had. Yeah, and only Hudson has more, right? With 10, I think. Is that right? Hudson is the only one that exceeds him. And when you say that you're the second best end in the pre-modern era, how can he not be in the yeah, Hall of Fame? Right. Yeah, that's a good question. And and um, that question needs to be asked. But he has to have his case heard. And mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the problem. You've you got to get that case to the board of selectors as a finalist. And that hasn't happened. And um, I'm not sure why it didn't happen with the Centennial class, but in terms of getting him across the finish line. I mean, I just, there are people that just jump. Ox Emerson's another guys that should be across the finish line. But again, 
if you're talking about 1920s, that's Llewellyn in the 1930s, you know, Oxford, I think some people just sort of tune out and go, I, I don't know what that game was like. I don't really care. I, I mean, I'm more interested in what I've seen the last 20 or 30 years, that sort of thing. They tune out. So that's why your question about, do you think people really have a vested interest? There is a division within that group. Um, the older guys obviously are saying, yeah, we need to do it. Some of the younger guys um, are saying, I, I don't really care. Let's move forward. Well, I mean, that gets to the natural question of, you know, what do you think about the diversity of the backgrounds of the people that are on the committee? Do you think that there's enough football history knowledge there to adequately look at the cases of all eras, not just yeah. the current? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, the, one of the problems, and it's a built-in one that I completely understand, is many of those uh, representatives, 32 of them, as a matter of fact, are from cities with teams, right? So you have one per team. So um, if you're in L.A., you, you've got the one for the L.A. Chargers, but you've also got one for um, the L.A. Rams. So you've got 32 teams represented. So you have those 32, and then you've got now um, 18 at-large um, individuals. I'm one of those. So I don't cover a team now. I mean, I'm at large, so I, I, I get in there um, based on years of background. But but um, when I was covering the 49ers, I was asked to sub for the representative, Sam Skinner at that time, and um, to go in and pinch hit for him because he was sick. And so I said, okay, well, I'm covering the Super Bowl. I, I'll do it. But my concern wasn't the Hall of Fame. My concern was the 49ers. And, and lived and died each day versus the rest of the, my competition. So you look to see what they had, what you had. Okay. I won that one next day. Well, maybe not so good. And they, so you, you have to cover the team. That's your sole interest. You're getting paid to cover the team, not getting paid to vote for the pro football Hall of fame. So um, I gladly went in there, had no idea really what I was up against, but I'd done a little bit of homework. And then I'm listening to these guys. I'm going, my goodness. I mean, in over my head, that's why I understand why some people in there don't really have an interest in um, some of these individuals simply because their primary interest is the team they're covering. Even when they're in, in um, at the Super Bowl, there was so much going on with the 49ers, even when I was at the Super Bowl and they weren't involved, that I was covering them every day from, from wherever, New Orleans, San Diego, wherever it was. And so my interest was that team because I was getting paid and, and, um, and taken care of and, and had a job because of that team. If I didn't cover them adequately, someone else is going to take my place. So that's how 32 of those people are. And so I do understand that. But that said, um, I, I heard somebody one time saying, the group needs to get younger. And I went, no, it doesn't. <laughs> Clearly, I'm biased, but it goes, it needs to get older. It doesn't need to get younger, it needs to get older. I mean, how many people in here know who some of these guys are? And I'm not talking about the Al Wisters. I mean, listen, I didn't know either until I just looked into them, but I have the time to do it. I'm not covering the 49ers or the Chargers anymore. Um, I'm old enough to have covered the Baltimore Colts. I'm not covering them anymore. Right? I'm covering, I, I'm doing stuff involving the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So, um, and by and large. And so those players of interest me, of a, a great interest to me. That's why I love talking to you, Ken, because you've got a great interest in them. And you talk about Lavi Dilwick. I want to hear what you have to say about him. That's interesting to me. These guys don't care because they're covering a team that's out there playing tomorrow. And and their their readers want to read about those guys. They don't really don't want to read about Lavi Dilwick or Al Wister. So um, 
uh, I think when you get some people who've seen some of these guys, and I've talked to um, individuals about this when we talked somewhat in that room about the eye test, you know, um, I remember once talking about Kellen Winslow, and this wasn't when he was elected. It was it was when Don Coryell was coming up for mm-hmm. election, and this was a while ago. Okay, but it was the, actually it was the year when Tony Gonzalez came up, and so talk about Don Coryell, and and so I, I was talking about Don Coryell, you know, his impact on the game, how he changed it with Winslow. He, he was a tight end, but he actually was a wide receiver. Put him in motion, two tight end offense, blah blah blah, going on, and uh, he nobody. Cover him. They, they put a safety on him, a linebacker. He was a mismatch. At which point, Dan Fouts, who's also you know, at large member, talks about the mismatches he created and how he changed the game, at least at that point, about the tight end position. All right. So it's thrown open for conversation, and there's none. There's none. And when there's no conversation, you know, you're dead. That <laughs> your your candidate doesn't have a chance. So I looked at Dan, and I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. So now we go to the next candidate. <laughs> It's Tony Gonzalez. <laughs> and the guy goes, Tony Gonzalez changed the game from as far as the tight end position goes. I looked at Dan and went, you got to be kidding me. I mean, they're not listening. They're not listening. And and I know that Ditka changed. I mean, I'm certainly old enough to have seen Ditka and Mackey. I realized the impact they had. I mean, they I mean, they changed the game, too, with that position. But when, when Kellen came out, all of a sudden, tight ends are leading the league in receptions. Um, and, and, you know, getting 80 and 90 receptions. And now you look at Kelsey and those guys and then, you know, it's a hundred receptions is it unusual, but, but without Winslow to me, what, what I was saying is there's no Tony Gonzalez. Well, then this guy is basically saying, I don't know what Tony, Kellen Winslow is. Tony Gonzalez changed the game. And, and so that's, that's the kind of thing that I wish we weren't dealing with. And that's just an education. That's all it is. It's an education. Do just look into some history. I love history. I mean, um, uh, but I was an American history major in college because I love history. I love the Civil War. I love de- dealing with um, issues from the past. I, I, I really believe strongly that's a, a blueprint for the future. I mean, if, if you learn from mistakes, what you do, you, you shouldn't commit them again. You can't have success unless you have mistakes. You'll learn from them. And so, um, you know, I, I believe strongly in that uh, adage that those who can't remember the past are condemned to repeat it. I think that's true. And so well, let's look at the history of this game. But but the, the problem is that there are some people there and I, it's not a criticism. It's an observation. They're not getting paid to look at the history of the game. They're getting paid to know what their team's doing next or how they're, what they're doing wrong, what they're doing right. That's what they're getting paid for. And, and I'm not getting paid anything. I'm doing this because I've got an interest in it now, but uh, I don't, I'm not comparing myself versus anyone else now because I'm doing it as I'm in semi-retirement. They're not in semi-retirement. And so that's sort of the, the, the built-in um, hurdle that you've got there. I've, I've felt very strongly for a long time that we need more historians in that room. I take that back. We need historians in that room. We have none. People like you, Turney, TJ True, Chris Willis, get them in there, all right? Because they have no affiliation with anyone. Their affiliations to history. Your love is for history. So you can tell me about Lavi Dilwig and why you like him, why you've, you've looked at film, you've studied his accomplishments. I work with John Turney all the time with this talk of fame too. He knows what he's talking about because he watches the film. Chris Willis, the head of, NFL, of the NFL of research at NFL Films. He knows what he's talking about. TJ Troop, the same thing. These guys know what they're talking about. So why wouldn't we have you in the room? And, and at the very least, I said, when we have consultants for 
seniors, the, the senior committee, when they meet, now they meet all of them, which is a step, that's another step forward, not worth getting into, but the entire group meets. It wasn't always the, the case in the past. We'd have five, not all members. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all, all members of the coach contributor committee meet, they all meet. But when they do, we have consultants. We have consultants. And too often, I believe that you, there's a risk of um, bias with those consultants because they have an affiliation, let's say, with a team. And I mean, if I was a, uh, I don't know, linebacker for the Chargers and um, somebody came up um, from the, you know, uh, Chuck Muncie's name came up or Paul Lowe's name came up, uh, Walt Sweeney, I, I'd probably am inclined to talk very positively about him. Um, and so um, I brought that up along with several others at this last meeting. I said, I, I really don't see the need for consultants because I, I think they can steer the conversation a certain way. Whereas an historian doesn't care, really doesn't care. He's just going to tell you what he thinks and what he sees. And, and so he doesn't care if the guys from the Packers, the Bills, the Chargers, he doesn't care. And, and um, there wasn't a lot of traction for that. I wish there were. I wish you guys were in that room because you can bring some um, nonpartisan information to the room. Um, I mean, in, instead, we get somebody from that team. Again, if you're from Ken, if you're, let's say you're from Green Bay, you're going to present the Green Bay player. Obviously, you're going to be talking as much as you can to get him elected. All right. But I'd like to hear somebody um, who's neutral. It doesn't care either way and just say, OK, listen, I I, I, I want this or I, I want to hear about this and that. And, and you would assume that the, the 49 others probably are that way. They should be neutral. But that's not always the case. Um, that's why I'd like to have someone to defer to and being an historian to say, wait a second, I, I heard what he said and you contradicted it. And you said that wasn't true. Uh, Ken Crippen, what do you think? Because you, you study this guy. What do you think? John Turney, what do you think? And, and I'd like to see that happen. Um, I don't think there's any legs for that either, but um, I'm hopeful. I mean, I'll just still push for it, but uh, I'd like to see that happen. Yeah, and I've seen it in the past where I would reach out to selectors and give them the non-biased cases on specific players that I think should be considered and you get crickets coming back. So, I mean, you know, you do have some like the Rick Oslins and stuff. Right. You have a great conversation with them. You, you have a great conversation, but you get a lot of the other selectors and they're like, yeah, don't care. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's right. I mean, Rick's the guy who got me really interested in digging into the past. And then when we did our talk of fame network, it was fun because just all of a sudden you start realizing there's so many Hall of Fame eligible and Hall of Fame worthy players out there who are waiting for a phone call that's never coming. Mm. I mean, that, that's sad to me. And they're guys that we watch growing up. And and so um, I know um, how meaningful it was for me to see some of these guys. And how and Again, I test just watching them going, that guy's a great player. I mean, I thought Gary Collins was a great player because I saw him destroy the Colts in the second half of the 64 championship game, you know? And, um, and, and I realized, and I, and I watched those games, even when there was like one game each weekend, but you'd see the Cleveland Browns, you'd see how great Jim Brown was. We'd see Ditko with the bears. Um, and you know, if I was close to Baltimore, I'd see the Colts and I love watching the Colts play, but, but um, you got to feel for it. And, and, and there's just a lot going on today that um, kind of gets in the way. And, and honestly, I think analytics from my vantage point are part of it. Um, you know, people are talking about, well, you know, his yards per carry to the left side with this and to the right side with this. And, and, and I, I, don't, I don't care. <laughs> it's like we, there, I remember some guys were talking about 
Morton Anderson when his case came up. And they're talking about, you know, indoors, get kicking off this hash mark, that hash mark, and going like he was an all decade player twice for 20 years. He dominated the position. He's the all time leading scorer. What are we missing? At which point someone said, why don't we just say punters and kickers need not apply because we ain't putting them in. If we don't put this guy in, we're putting nobody in. That ended the conversation. I mean, mm. that that fast forwarded. And, and, and Fouts, actually, to his credit, um, stood up and said, listen, I'm just looking at I, I don't know anything other than he was all decade twice. All right. 20 years. Nobody better. That, that That's good enough for me. And And that's kind of the point. Sometimes it's very simple. You know, it, rather than going into these numbers and everything, I, I don't care because if you want to talk about numbers, you look at some of the quarterbacks in the past, you go, well, he threw more interceptions than, than touchdown passes. Yeah, of course. It's a different game. <laughs> it was a different game. You know, try going across the middle with Jack Tatum and George Atkins and waiting to take your head off. I mean, and, and they threw it deep. It was a vertical passing game. It wasn't a horizontal game. I mean, today you pitch a ball two feet in front of you and it's a completed pass. And one of those jet sweeps, it's mind-boggling to me. So we look at look at those completion percentages. I, all I know, and 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 now you get me worked up, Kim, because I see some of these top ten lists of quarterbacks, and I get so infuriated when I see where people put Unitas and Graham. And I go, all I know about Otto Graham was he played ten years, went to ten championship games, and won seven times. If that happened today you'd be calling him the Michael Jordan of football or something, you know, um, instead, you know, we drop him down the list because we don't, we don't really remember him. We don't see him. He's not on ESPN. We don't see any highlights. And oh, Graham, he's a great athlete. I just great athlete. Um, but anyway, um, and, yeah, and, and you look at it too. It's like he, he went 29 straight games without a defeat. Yeah. So you compare that to the 72 dolphins. This guy went, most of the 47 season, all of the 48 season, and a lot of the 49 season without losing a game. They won more championships than they lost games in that four-year period in the All-America Football Conference. How can you not be considered one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time when you do something like that? But yet people have him like, yeah, well, he's like the 30th of all time or something. It's like, do you know anything about the game? Yeah, when I was young, I, I mean, as I said, I, I was a great um, Unitas fan, and I've got pictures of him on my wall um, because he was the, to me he was the greatest quarterback I'd seen, and I loved the way he played the game. I loved the way he um, took a team downfield in the last two minutes, and 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 the way he and Barry. I mean, in fact, it's funny. I, I'm going to digress here for a second, but when Chris Carter was up, somebody in the room said Chris Carter was the best sideline receiver in the history of the game. At which point, Nick Canepa and I were sitting there. And blurted out, have you ever seen Raymond Berry? And the answer was no, he hadn't. Um, so, um, but uh, I, I, I was a big United fan as a kid and still am. And, um, and I remember asking my father, have you ever seen anyone like him? And he said, yeah. And I said, who? He goes, Otto Graham. And I said, I don't know who he is. He goes, Cleveland Browns. I mean, he's a great quarterback, great mm-hmm. quarterback. So I started looking into what Otto Graham had done and went, oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, you, you can't beat that. I mean, the Bill Russell of, of pro football. Um, you know, there's a guy, if you're going to draft anyone first for your pro football team, it's going to be Otto Graham because you're never going to lose. You're not right. going to lose. You can be in a championship game. Yeah, and they say, well, Brady's won seven Super Bowls. And it's like, well, Otto Graham's won seven, but it took him yep. half the amount of time to do it. It took yep. Brady 20 years to get seven. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then, and then the answer, you know, the argument as well, you know, different game than not complete. Yeah. It, 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 there it, fewer teams. I, I agree with the all American football conference. I understand all that stuff. All I know is against the competition that he had, he was the best and there wasn't anyone close. He was the best. And that's what, how, how you look at it. against the competition. All he did was win, he just won all, all the time. This winning percentage is astounding. Yeah. Um, and that's again, another guy I feel very strongly about who gets lost in the shuffle is Roger Staubach. He won a ton of games. He won a ton of games. Look for Roger Staubach's name on top 10 lists. And people want to tell me that, oh, yeah, Drew Brees is better. Oh, oh come on. I mean, let's get real people. Um, and, and so Aaron Rodgers, I, mean, I, I just hear all the time, Dan Marino, Aaron Rodgers, Drew Brees. Uh, Roger Staubach was astoundingly good. But again, you don't have ESPN highlights. No one's talking about him today. He played a long time ago. We don't care. That's that's kind of the feeling. Yeah, you're getting me riled up, too, with the one of my pet peeves of, you know, either players or stats or anything out of context, you know, are absolutely meaningless unless you can put the historical perspective on it to know what those numbers mean. It doesn't mean anything. I mean, you look at the, you could probably tell me a little bit more about this, but the Floyd little thing where he's like, well, he was hit behind the line this number of times. Okay. And well, how's that compared to his contemporaries? Yeah, Nobody right. answered the question. It's like, well, then how do you know it's good? <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. That's a that's a good good point. I, I I'm um, constantly reminded that if if something didn't happen um, less than five minutes ago, we probably don't care about it. We have a short attention span now, and I'm talking mm-hmm. about pro football viewers, or actually um, probably just people in general. Um, we don't really have a regard for history as I think we once did, and and I saw that um, not that long ago when on Twitter. Um, I saw someone post a video of Patrick Mahomes. I'm pretty sure it was against the Baltimore Ravens in about three or four years ago, rolled right, stopped, threw left down the field and hit Tyreek Hill in stride. And, and the, the guy who posted said, have we ever seen this before? And like, this is, I, this is astounding. And I normally don't respond because you're asking for trouble if you respond, mm-hmm. right? And I put, yeah. I saw John Selway do this at Stanford. I mean, yeah, I just saw John Elway do it at Stanford. I saw him do it with the Broncos. This has happened before. I mean, it's happened before. Um, so, but because of the power of video today and the internet and ESPN and everything we've got now and replays and everything, we see it over and over and over and over again. And we think, oh my gosh, it's it's un- unbelievable. Um, and, um, and yet, as I said, I, I have seen it. I mean, I, when Elway came out, I was covering the Colts, you know, and I, and I remember what um, Ernie, of course, he said to me at the time, because he went out there to see him. This is obviously well before the internet came back. And I said, how good is he? And he goes, this guy's unbelievable. He said he's, he, he can make every throw that Burt can make, meaning Burt Jones, and, and one that he can't, which I think was a swing pass. That's a, a t- one touch, but he goes, he's got all the tools of, of any quarterback I've ever seen. He, he is a generational talent. And John Elway, um, I, I wasn't in his in his corner because I was covering the Colts and I felt he really um, wasn't straight up with the team. You know, when he said he wasn't going to play, it turns out the day before uh, Marvin Demoff said he didn't want to play for Frank Cush. Well, everyone understood that. They understood it. But in the meantime, he had disparaged the city, um, you know, and, and said some things about the city. But watching him play, I mean, it was fun. And he could make all the throws. So, yeah, I think Patrick Mahomes' marvelous talent is a great player. But I've seen that before, and so have you. And that's what I'm talking about, you know, if you've been around. Um, and, um, 
and and so it's it's frustrating if you bring that to the table because there'll be some people and I had someone say, well, just because you saw something, you think you're better than me. No, I don't. But it gives a different perspective. You want to roll some videotape of John Elway? Bring out any game from Stanford where he went against, I remember, Notre Dame, rolled right through about 60 yards down the field. Watch that, okay? Mm -hmm. um, it's the same thing. That's the Context. same thing. I'm going to take a quick break, then return to our interview with Pro Football Hall of Fame selector Clark Judge. If you're enjoying this interview, make sure you visit the FLA website at www.football-learning-academy.com. There you'll find more archival interviews such as Don Shula, Mercury Morris, Ken Riley and Maxie Bond. We also have a variety of other interviews, such as Amy Trask, the first female CEO of an NFL franchise. We have broadcasting and sports writing legend Leslie Visser teaching a mini masterclass on interviewing. Nolan Harrison, a former player and current senior director at the NFL Players Association. Shannon Easton, the first female on-field official in NFL history, and many more. To get access to these interviews, classes on the history of the game, a blog, and much more, go to www.football-learning-academy.com. And now back to our interview with Hall of Fame selector Clark Judge. I want to get back to a couple of things that you had mentioned before. You were talking about the Kellen Winslow presentation yep. and Tony Gonzalez and how they changed the game. I hear that every single yeah. year. They changed the game. Do you think that it is so overused at this point that it's meaningless? Yes, I do. Yeah, because no one really knows, you know, who changed the game, who, what, what happened. I mean, I was told Randy Moss changed the game because he could go straight down the field. I went, what about Bob Hayes, man? Um, but, um, but yeah, I do. I think it, it, there's certain buzzwords that you're trying to get someone's attention. That's one of them. Um, and um, I, I, I just think if, if you say that, you better be prepared to back it up. And, um, to throw that out and then uh, expect it not to be challenged, um, I, I think is sort of ridiculous. I mean, you throw it out randomly and it has been thrown out randomly. And also the other thing is first ballot hall of famer that you hear all the time now, first ballot hall of famer, that mm -hmm. should be meaningful. But um, I honestly heard somebody, I know who it was, I'm not going to mention on a telecast several years ago, a Monday night game. It's talking about Steven Guskowski. <laughs> Surefire first ballot hall of famer. He said, I just, my jaw dropped and I went, you've got to be kidding me. It's supposed to get your attention, but the more you use it for in context like that, Stephen Goskowski is a great kicker. He's a good kicker. Um, do I think he's a Hall of Famer based on what little I know before? Look, I'd say no. I mean, it's not, I didn't look and go, whoa, whoa this guy's Adam Vinatieri or um, somebody who's so special. Yeah, he had a great resume, but I'd like to see it, you know, in front of me before I say that. First about Hall of Famer? No, no, it's not happening. Um, and um, there, was, um, there was somebody else that came up and I'm trying to think of uh, who it was. They were talking again about first ballot Hall of Famer. And, and when you hear that and you're in that room and you know what goes on, you go, do you understand how difficult that is? But the reason it, it, it's used so much is because every so often we sort of bend the rules a little bit and somebody gets in on first ballot that, I, I don't think belongs, to be honest with you. And I'm not going to call out anyone in particular, but to me, the, the definition of first ballot is something that, I'll give him credit, Ron Borges once said, first ballot should be a guy whose name you mention when you stand up to make your presentation. The presentations are five minutes long. 
you give a background of the player. Lavi Dilwig, okay, here's what he did. He was, um, you know, eight-time pro baller, six-time, I mean, all-pro, six-time consensus all-pro. Okay, so you go into that, and you're building a case. A first ballot Hall of Famer should be Jerry Rice, and you sit down. That's it. Mm-hmm. I don't have to tell you about him. You should know. Mm-hmm. Joe Montana, that's it. Adios. And 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 that's it. And and that happened with Brett Favre. Um, Pete Doherty stood up. He said, I have a speech written. Why am I doing this? Brett Favre, when he sat down, he got a standing ovation. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was it. Why are we wasting time about it? We all know who he is. I mean, he's the first ballot guy. Why are we doing it? We all know who he is. So um, that to me is the definition. Um, but we've let a lot in lately. And there's a real um, rush to anoint these guys. And and there really shouldn't be. And and unless they're they're so good, Tom Brady is going to be first ballot Hall of Famer, right? We don't need to hear anything about Tom Brady. Um, so why would we talk about him? But um, it, it's 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 interesting in that at one point I think we had something like um, there were fifteen and five fifteen something in five years. I don't know five or six years, but it was almost like we're doing three a year. And I went when you do that. You're leaving a lot of people behind. And that's when we were talking about some of these seniors um, who've been left behind. Joe Jacoby. Now, we're talking about modern era players. Roger Craig, Joe Jacoby, Everson mm-hmm. Walls, um, Albert Lewis lately. How have they been? How is it they didn't get in? Well, because we had guys we kept bringing back and they couldn't get forward because we're pushing other people as first ballot guys. John Lynch waited eight times as the finals, eight times. Um, Harry Carson, I don't know how many times it was for him, but finally got the point with John Lynch. I just said, either he's going forward, he's going out. I mean, why do we keep bringing him back if we're not going to move him forward? And, mm-hmm. and that's what happens when you, you're doing so many first ballot guys. Um, and, and I feel very strongly that unless it's a, a Jim Brown, Joe Montana, John Unitas, that um, what about these guys who are at the doorstep waiting and waiting and waiting and suddenly they're gone. And when they go into the senior pool, it's the abyss because there's so many Hall of Fame worthy guys, as you know, waiting who don't get called. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to one other thing you touched on briefly, but maybe we could expand on it a little bit. We've got this three year experiment going on with the three seniors. Realistically, what do you think is going to happen after that time period is up? I, I think he's going to extend it for another three years. That's a guess. I'm, I'm not saying anything that he's told me or anything like that. I'm just, I know I've heard some talk. I think he might extend it another three years. They'd have to go in, in front of the board of trustees there and get it approved. But I know Jim wants to get this right. If you hear anything out of his mouth first, it's always, I want to do the right thing. I want to get this right. And to the point where you guys are satisfied and we're satisfied that we're getting the right players in. And he feels very strongly that hasn't always been the case. And I think he's probably right on that. Um, sometimes I think our bar has been a little too low, especially lately. Um, and so Jim's like, I want to get the right players in. If you're telling me that all these all decade players haven't been discussed, 53 haven't been discussed, 59 are all decade players who are waiting to be elected. If that's the case, let's get them in the room to be discussed. Let's get it. Let's give them a chance to be discussed. And so, you can have, we have 12 finalists last year. Okay, those 12 finalists are going to be discussed. And out of that, three are going to be taken. Well, it doesn't mean that um, all those all-decade players are going to be elected. It just means their cases are going to be heard. They're going to be heard. 
And, and that's a step, a huge step forward, huge step. And again, the critics say, well, yeah, you, you know, three every year is not going to get the job done. Yeah, we think one was, it's three times better. I mean, come yeah. on, take it for what it's worth. It's a step forward. It's an improvement. And, and honestly, I'm grateful for Jim Porter doing this. And I think the historian should be, and the, and the players who are waiting should be too. He's given the Randy Gratishars a chance. He's given them a chance that they've deserved for years. Who are your top five seniors that you want to see get inducted? Well, it's funny because I know you'd asked me and I, and I wrote down a list and I, I, I mean, I, I, I kind of broke it into pre-modern and, and, and modern because um, I do that too. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, you know, Randy Gratishar is number one on my list. I mean, in terms of just, I, I just don't understand why he's not in. I just I mean the thing, honestly, that, you know, 2000, whatever tackles, I think that's actually worked against him. I think that's hurt him because people look and I go, oh yeah, those are phony numbers. Who has 2000 tackles? Well, I, I when uh, Ari Kaufman and I are doing this, I test for two podcasts, which we do each week. I said, let's find him out. Let's find out. Let's get his defensive coordinator on. So we got him on, we got Joe on. And, and, and I said, how realistic are those numbers? And he may, went to great pains to tell us that I didn't make them up. They're not phony. You can talk to a number of people. I talked to Jim Sacamano, the PR staff there in, in Denver. He said, I went into that room when Collier and those were, were putting those numbers together. They're not phony. They are real. Yeah, you can't imagine a guy making that many tackles, but they're legit. They are legit. Okay. But in that room, and I'm talking about the board of selectors, I don't think it's even mentioned because the presenter realizes they don't believe me. So why, why should I go to great pains to try to justify that? They don't believe it. So let's just say he made a lot of tackles. Right. Mm -hmm. And he made a lot of tackles and, and people, again, I trust historians like you um, that I consult um, have told me that Randy Gratishar might've been the best three, four goal line inside linebacker. I mean, he just stood up people. I saw him play, not the end of his career, but um, he was a great player on a great defense. Why is nobody from the orange question pro football of fame? I don't, I don't, I don't know, but he he's on my modern list. He he's, He's number one. I, I, I've got a guy, I would, I'd say out of the box sort of, but it's not out of the box because he was an all decade player. Eddie Metter, uh, mm. great safety for the Rams, defensive back for the Rams safety and cornerback start, but over safety and um, six time all pro still has the club record for interceptions. 46. That's a lot uh, block kicks, recovered fumbles. I, 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 I don't get it. I mean, he had, I think he had 18 recovered fumbles or forced fumbles, whatever it was. Um, but that's 64 turnovers. So 64 turnovers. That's a lot. Um, and he was an all-decade player. But he, now he's, he was a finalist. I'm not a finalist, but he was among those 12 last year. But he got no traction from what I've taught. Uh, 12. He should. Uh, Eddie Meadows should be in. Um, and then, and again, um, I'm going down um, modern guys. I think and Kuchenberg, just, I just think Kuch was, he'd been ignored for a long time. Eight-time finalist. I think his time's coming. Mm. I think it's coming soon. I, I, I think that if I had to guess, um, I think um, Gratishar, Kuchenberg, and maybe Sterling Sharp are next. Sterling Sharp's a guy I'd probably get behind mm -hmm. um, just because when he played, even though it was a short career, to me, there was only one wide receiver better as Jerry Rice. And, and you can even make the argument that he was right there with Jerry as one and one A. But um, he seems you know, to pick up a lot of traction over the last couple of years. He has. And um, it's interesting because 
I don't think, and I've got my book here, I don't think he was ever a finalist. Um, and and um, Sterling Sharp, if, again, I, I know how strongly people feel about him because um, uh, we've talked to, for instance, Ron Wolf, who uh, certainly knows about him. Um, yeah, Sterling Sharp, not a finalist. Um, so um, Ron Wolf, Brett Favre, I mean, what, what the meaning of, of how important was he to the, and then, you know, they had, uh, later they had great games against the, the 49ers, but, um, but I've talked to some 49ers defensive players um, who certainly went against him and said, this guy's a great player. I mean, I, I don't know what you guys are missing. Well, they'd say seven years, short career, except we can't talk about longevity anymore. That, that issue's gone. I mean, um, once we let, Terrell Davis in and uh, Kenny Easley in 2017. And, and I'm not saying they shouldn't be in, but I'm just saying once we did that, the longevity argument went out the window. So that, that ship has sailed. Uh, and that's why Tony Baselli, for instance, got in 2022. Tony Baselli was worthy, just had a short career, shortened by injury. Same mm-hmm. thing with the other two. So um, Same with, with Dick Stanfield. That's I mean, right. He got in. And you know, when you make the argument with him and Speedy, Speedy played more games than Stanfield. And why did Stanfield get in first? Yeah, that's right. Longevity um, was an issue. So, um, and and he got kicked back. Remember, as a senior, the first time, and then got in the second. Um, well, I thought it was the third time that he got in. Was it might have been the third time? Might yeah. have been the third. Time. I just remember I've been in the room twice when um, once when he was kicked back, and the other time when he was put yeah, in. But I think he was, uh, if I remember correctly, it was three times within five or seven years, or something like that. And then you know, I'm hearing the arguments of well, we're not getting enough people's cases heard. I was like, yeah. well, if you're putting the same person that's up right. all the time, you're not going to get these cases. Well, that's what I thought when I heard it the second time, because mm-hmm. I said, wait a second, we're trying to advance some of these cases. Why are we bringing the same guy back? It was five or six years later, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. But um, I understood why, why we did it. It's not worth going into. But but with Sterling Sharp, in those seven years, I mean, five-time Pro Bowler, um, three times, I think, led the league in uh, receiving yards and twice in touchdowns. Like but he, he was... A, and that's playing against with Jerry Rice in the Jerry Rice era. So he's a great player. Um, and again, I- injury cut his sh- career short. I'm not sure why he's gotten so much traction lately because I'm not in that senior committee room, but he's suddenly surged. Um, and at the expense of others who waited, you know, a lot longer, but he surged. Whereas with when he was a modern era candidate, he got no traction. Um, and, and he should, but there's a guy who's been left behind. Um, Maxie Bond's another guy I, I, I'm partial mm-hmm. to but just because um, I saw him play with the Eagles, some of the Rams. Um, and, you know, if, if you're seven time all pro, nine time pro bowler, you have more, I think, pro bowls than all of those all decade guys in the 60s. You must be doing something right. Um, mm-hmm. I'd like to see I'd like to see those guys. And that doesn't mean I don't think um, um, something you mentioned Tommy Nobris earlier. He's worthy. Yeah. But uh, like you were talking about Gratishar, Nobris and Bond and, you know, Holly. Those are great players. I mean, they should be in, but um, uh, at some point, you just kind of, you've got to at least move forward on, on, on some of these other guys. And and um, I think Bond's time should come. I, I like the idea of trying to get these guys in while they're alive, Ken, mm-hmm. um, because it is so meaningful. But then going, you know, when you asked me, uh, I, I mentioned the, the pre-modern, um, Worcester, I, I'd say Llewellyn, um, Ox, um Dilwig and I'm trying to think who the fifth one was but anyway um but and that's not in that order uh, it's not mm-hmm. but um Wistert is the at the top of my list just because I just got on and, and realized I don't see what this what there's no wholeness this resume what are we missing 
Mm-hmm. And, and what we're missing is these guys don't know who he is. I mean, I'm not these I'm, it doesn't make me special. The only reason I knew about him was because I looked into him. But there are, let me just put this away. There are a lot of people who don't know who he is. That's understandable. I understand that. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's worse. The worst thing is if they don't care. If that's the case, then you know what? Let's find someone else to take that position um, on the board. And, and I'm not saying that is the case. But sometimes you get the feeling that, God, um, what's, why can't we, what, what's missing here? I mean, as I said, if, if I told you that John Doe today, nine years, he played eight times all pro, won two championships with captain of his team, all decade player. What do you think? You go first ballot. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, um, and and we haven't done that. So, um, but, um, you know, a guy like Ken Anderson might be a consideration. Um, he's to me, he's, he's the, I know uh, Isbell is a guy that some people like, I don't know if you do as well, but, um, but Ken Anderson is the, is the guy that I looked at and thought, you know, I, I, I didn't look at him as a hall of famer when I was watching him and I saw him playing. He was really good. But the more I look at what we're considering now and how so we've kind of broadened the, the scope of what is a hall of famer. Cause honestly, sometimes I'm not sure I go, Ken Anderson certainly deserves nothing else. He certainly deserves to be considered. I'd like to hear his case argued in front of the board. And he was a finalist, not a finalist, a semifinalist last year. Um, and uh, I'd like to see him, I'd, I'd like to see him argued as a finalist and just see what happens. But um, those, are, those are some of the people. Yeah, I wouldn't put Isbell in. I'm not a <laughs> fan of his. I mean, you look at it, he played five years, okay. He was all decade team in the 1930s. Well, those were his two worst years of his career. He was average at best. So the reason why you got on the 30s all-decade team is because the 40s team was so stacked and they wanted him on an all-decade. So, yeah, well, he played two years in the 30s. Let's put him on there. It's like, well, no, <laughs> he doesn't deserve to be there. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I'm not going to push for Ismail at all. If I, I would push for Llewellyn and Dillwig if you're going to get a pre-modern era Packer in there. And yeah. That's yeah. how I feel about Dillwig. So, so, okay, break it down to your top three of the ones you think you're going to get in. I think you alluded to it, of Gratishar, Kuchenberg, and Sharp. Is that, uh... that? That would be my guess. That would be my guess. That's a guess. That's that's me individually. I haven't talked to anyone. That's mm-hmm. me individually. Just make sure we're clear on that. Mm-hmm. No worries. All right, let's get to the coaches and contributors categories. Yeah. Yep. I, mean, I know Buddy Parker is at the top of your list. Um, he is. Who are the other four that are in your top five? Clark Shaughnessy, obviously. Um, I, 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 I sort of mystified that he's not in um um I, I in my if you're asking me my my top five who i would put in my top five or asking me who i think the top five will be but in, in my top five it would be parker i, I defer to the history part because i think we need to get these guys in now and and mm-hmm. then we can defer defer to somebody uh, later a more modern guy um shaughnessy would be another one I'm a big Eddie Kotal fan. Um, and uh, Yeah. I mean, I, I just scout. don't understand how he's not in. He's one um, of my favorites, too. Yeah. I know a guy in the um, league office who called me once and said, you know, they talk about all these people being the fathers of modern scouting. Eddie Kotal was the father of modern scouting. He was out there bird-dogging everybody. And and the mm-hmm. players he brought into L.A., great players. Great yeah. players. And had so many that abundance of players that they went elsewhere. But um, yeah, I, you can... I, I don't. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I just I I don't understand that, but I also know he's got zero traction. All right. Mm-hmm. I, I, th- that said, I mean, again, I I did a workup. I'm talked to some people, and I went, boy, I I think he's he's 
terrific. Um, I, I'm probably in the minority in this, but this because this guy died at a very early age. I, I'm a big Jack Benisi fan in um, mm -hmm. Green Bay. Um, what he did there in terms of drafting players and also with Lombardi. Um, so um, I think he was at least the, the seed that led to uh, great uh, championship teams in the Lombardi era Packers. And um, he died, I think, at the age of 33. And so I think if you asked anyone today, what do you think about Venisi? They go, Jerry Venisi? No, no, he's not getting in. No, Jack Venisi. So um, he's a, someone that people don't really um, recognize. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm a Bucko Kilroy fan too. Um, mm -hmm. And um, because of um, everything he was involved with, player, front office, um, uh, everything that he, I mean, for, I don't know, what's close to 60 years, I think he devoted to the game. And, um, and, and I, I, I kind of knew him from a distance, but um, didn't realize his impact on football until I looked into it. And with the, the Cowboys, I mean, I said to one time, who is, who is the genius here? We got Texan, we got Gillian. I, people tell me that Bucko should be in here. I mean, so who are we putting in here? Um, and, and that's the problem we've got with, I'm honestly, I, I, I know the guy I was going to mention was Art Rooney Jr. I think there's a fatigue factor with the Steelers and the Rooney name. So we, we're going to put in Art Rooney, we're going to put in Dan Rooney, Art Rooney Jr. Who's, who's actually responsible? Are they everyone, are they all going in? Um, and, and I realize what he did. I understand what he did. Um, I, I'm uh, when I broke in this business, um, I was sort of taken under Vito Stellino's wing and Vito Stellino covered those teams. And it's a guy that I admire very much because he knows about the history of the game. He's a guess that Art Rooney Jr. is not in. Um, and I understand that because he covered those teams and I know the players that he brought in there. But um, I don't think he's ever getting in. And uh, I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying I don't think he is because I think, again, there's a fatigue factor. I, I would put him in at some point. But I, I think there's got to be a little bit of a distance here because uh, Dan's in, um, Art's in, and, and probably has to be a, a bit of a distance. The guy who I think is getting in, if you can ask me, I think it's going to be Robert Kraft. I think it's going to be Robert Kraft next year. Um, and um, that's because he's had a ton of traction lately. Um, and there's a lot of support for him. Um, and I, I'm, I'm not one to rush on that one. I think he, he belongs in at some point. But the coach contributor committee um, should be looking at um, guys who actually, you know, either if they're a coach, did they contribute to? Because now if they did, that makes them doubly effective. And, mm -hmm. and Buddy Parker did. Um, you know, did they, were they, were they, he was successful as a coach, but what did he contribute? I mean, you look at the two minute offense, I mean, he contributed a lot. You look at some of the things that Shaughnessy did with the uh, defensive teams in, in Chicago and then sort of, sort of with the T formation. Um, you know, those are huge contributions and, and, and they, they did change the game. I know you're tired of hearing that, but they did change the game. They brought things to the fore uh, and uh, that, that were, that were huge. I mean, that uh, the Christensen secondary in Detroit, what they were doing there. Um, uh, Buddy Parker, I just, I, I, I don't understand how we've let him slip through. And, and, and what I'm, I would say here is, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, probably will mention the, the, the board when his name comes up is one of the reasons he has no traction is we have people campaigning for all these individuals. We have nobody campaigned for Buddy Parker. Why? Because they're all dead. That's why they're gone. They got, so, so you can have people talking to you about Robert Kraft. I understand. I, I get that. 
and 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 talking about some of these um mike shanahan I, I covered mike when he was the offense coordinator in san francisco love mike shanahan mike holmgren i know what he did i know mike very well um they're, they're worthy candidates but buddy parker's above them i mean he's done more he did more so why aren't we listening the reason we're listening is because we don't know who he is anymore we just don't know how many times we hear buddy parker's name mentioned on sports center zero you know, how many times we see video of him? Zero. Um, how many times we people campaign for him? Zero. So um, so that's the thing. And the same thing with Shaughnessy. When I was at Stanford, when I used to cover the 49ers, I lived in Palo Alto. I go to Stanford basketball game. They got a statue of Buddy, of a Ch- Clark Shaughnessy at um, Naples Pavilion. They've got a statue of uh, Clark Shaughnessy in there. And so um, he, I know he had a, a huge impact on college football and, and his impact on the, the pro game. But I don't know why... We've left. Um, I didn't even mention Ralph Hay. Ralph Hay's mm-hmm. another guy. I mean, you can make the argument, and it has been made. There might not be an NFL today without Ralph Hay because he brought all those guys together in Canton. That mm-hmm. was knocked down by someone who said, "Oh, come on, that's preposterous." My point is, no, it's not because it happened. We can assume that it would happen because that the guy said, "You know, somebody would have done that." I said maybe, but I don't know that. What I do know is one person did it. This was the guy. Somebody might have done it, probably would have done it, but we don't know that. We know that this guy did it. So why is he not in? <laughs> well, he did it why? twice. They yeah, had two yeah. meetings. They had one in August and they had one in September, September being the one that the NFL considers their birthday. Yeah. He saw that it was something that they needed to do. I mean, there was talk about it prior to 1920 multiple places multiple states multiple cities all talked about creating a league nobody ever put together something that was sustainable yeah right they put something together that was sustainable and they used the attitude that it was we've got to expand so we're not just looking at ohio that's what the first meeting was all about is ohio teams they said well we've got to expand it out if we ever expect to be able to make this viable because your surrounding states were always stealing players. And so they brought in the New Yorks, they brought in the Illinois, they brought in the Pennsylvanias. And that is why they were able to succeed. So, yeah, I mean, Ralph Hay is somebody that should definitely be considered. Yeah. In fact, now that I, I've, I've talked about him, he would be in my top three. Honestly, I should put him in my mm-hmm. top three. He'd be in my top three. Yeah. My top five is pretty similar to yours. I mean, Shaughnessy, you've got Parker, you've got Codal. We got Blanton Collier, um, yeah. Kilroy. And, you know, when you look at Codal too, I mean, you know, the first person that you could really consider a scout, I mean, Wellington Marrow was ahead of that. He was the first one really putting together scattering reports on players, but he wasn't the road warrior that Codal was. Right. Codal was the one that went out and watched the players. Marrow was more of, you know, looking at news reports, um, whether it's from newspapers or magazines or something like that. And that's how he created his scouting reports. But Kotal went on the road and actually looked at the players themselves, talked with the coaches, talked with other players. So he's the person you are going to look at as the first true scout. Now, I'm not sure if someone like a Lloyd Wells or something like that is going to get some traction at all. Hey, me, Kotal is the person that I would put in ahead of Wells. But yeah, Lloyd Wells should get some traction, but I agree with you. Um, and the, the, the thing that's interesting um, to me is that 
when we first put together and when the hall first put together the uh, coach and contributor committees, but again, the, the, the contributor um, committees and they, so they go, we're going to have a contributor category. That was 2014 with the election being for the class of 2015. That was going to be the first class. The idea was the people who don't have a chance when they're going against um, coaches and, and, players in, in the modern era. So we're going to divide this into a separate category so that others, GMs, scouts, possibly owners. Well, three of the first seven were owners. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, I had someone tell me, and, and someone I trust and, and respect very much, I thought this was supposed to be a contributor category. It's turned it out to be an owner's category. Mm-hmm. And I thought he was right. Because the Eddie Codles and Jerry, Vene- and Jerry Jack Venises should be recognized. They should be. And so fortunately, um, you know, a guy like Bobby Beathard, who I, I covered for years, um, was recognized. Um, you know, the first two were Polian and, and Wolf. OK, they were GMs. Bobby was out there scouting, actually. He was more of a scout than a GM um, in terms of the, the true meaning of it. He was out there looking at a lot of players. And I, I went way back with him and uh, we had our ups and downs, but I, I respected the heck out of him. And uh, I think he looked at players a little bit differently than everyone else and finally got in. But I, I didn't understand why he had to wait, you know, sometime behind some of these guys that he had to wait behind because I thought he's a contributor. But um, at, at this point, there is a um, I think there's a lot more support for um, a Robert Kraft and understandably so. I, I get it. Um, but I, I I've said I think he's getting in. I don't think there's a hurry to get him in. I, I want to try to get some of these guys in that I feel very strongly were overlooked by the Centennial class, i.e. Buddy Parker, um, Clark Shaughnessy is probably another one too, but, um, but that, that haven't, haven't been considered. And, and Ralph Hay actually had a, a, he had a close call a couple years ago. I mean, he moved up the charts and he moved up the charts because the person who was presenting him did a great job. And when he bowed out, as I said, one of the criticisms was, okay, let me bring them together. But um, anybody could have done that. And that's when, you know, I think I said, yeah, but we don't know that. Nobody did. He did. He's right. the one that did it. So um, you can say, well, you know, anybody could have led this country through the Civil War. I don't know that Abraham Lincoln did, I mean, you know, he survived that 1864 election. I know that. Um, um, and, and um, so, um, and it's the same thing, actually, since I told you about the civil war, same thing about saying, well, the union forces versus the Confederacy. I mean, anyone can, you've got all that um, uh, artillery and manpower and um, the industrial um, backing of the, the North, you certainly can win that war. Well, they went through a dozen generals before they come on U.S. ground who says, we've got more than they do. We're just going to keep going forward. I'm not I'm not going to be McClellan. We're not going backwards. We're going forward. And that's what we just kept doing. We got more. So we're going to suffer casualties. We're, we're going to go forward. So you can say, well, somebody could have done that. Yeah, but he did it. He's the one who did it. And and so um, I feel very strongly about Grinch doesn't get his time in court, but we're not talking about the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Until now. <laughs> All right, Clark, I, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for being here. Yeah, no, I appreciate and I appreciate your help, Ken. And you've been a great assistance to me and um, a supporter. But I, I love uh, I, I love listening to you and I love your take on uh, individuals and uh, hope in the future we, we continue this because um, you're, you're an ally and, and you're uh, a trusted ally and, and a friend. So thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate the compliments. 
Thanks for listening to our interview with Pro Football Hall of Fame selector Clark Judge. But this episode isn't finished. For our Pro Football History Nugget of the Week, I'm going to dive a little deeper into some of the people that Clark and I mentioned throughout this interview. Let's start with Randy Gratishar, one of Clark's favorites. Gratishar played for the Denver Broncos from 1974 through 1983, and over those 10 seasons, he made it to seven Pro Bowls. Seven Pro Bowls is the most by any inside linebacker who is not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame and is on par with other Hall of Fame linebackers. What stood out for Gratishar is that he's considered by some to be one of the best short yardage linebackers of all time, but that's something that's hard to quantify. He could also play the pass as well as the run, showing excellent range and mobility. Of the linebackers in the seniors pool, you're looking at Gratishar, Maxi Bond, and Tommy Nobis now that Chuck Howley has been inducted. Gratishar is the favorite of the three to make it to Canton, followed by Bond and Nobis. Looking at the pre-1960 players, Clark's favorite is Al Wistard, and I have Al Wistard second on my list of pre-1960 players. Wistard played for the Philadelphia Eagles from 1943 through 1951, including helping the team win two NFL championships. He was named to at least one major All-Pro team six times and consecutively from 1944 through 1949, including five times as a consensus All-Pro. In the four seasons from 1946 through 1949, various major news agencies selected combined all-NFL AAFC teams. Worcester was named first team on at least one of those teams all four seasons. No other player accomplished that feat, including 16 Pro Football Hall of Famers that played all four of those seasons. He was also named to the all-decade team of the 1940s. Laverne Dillwig is my number one pre-1960 player. He played for the 1926 Milwaukee Badgers before heading to the Green Bay Packers for the 1927 through 1934 seasons. As Clark and I had mentioned, Dillwig made All-Pro every season of his career except for the final season. He was also a six-time consecutive consensus All-Pro. Now, to put that into context, Hall of Fame ends Bill Hewitt, Red Badgrill, and Wayne Milner combined had five consensus All-Pros. Dillwig had six, and they were consecutive, which shows excellence over an extended period of time. He was also a four-time consecutive unanimous All-Pro and made the All-Decade team of the 1920s. He had 27 interceptions in his career from the defensive end position. Now think about that. You take other pre-modern era Hall of Fame ends that lined up in the defensive end position, Bill Hewitt, Red Badgrill, and Wayne Milner, combined, they had two. Dillwig had 27. On film, you can see that he was incredibly quick, meaning that he could protect against the run as well as drop back into coverage, either covering a running back or an end. So there's no question that he is a Hall of Famer. My guess is that Dillwig has been overshadowed by his replacement, Don Hudson, one of the greatest receivers of all time and by far the greatest end of the pre-modern era. Vern Llewellyn's name was brought up. He played with the Packers from 1924 through 1932, with a short stint with the NFL's New York Yankees in 1927. Some have Llewellyn ahead of Dillwig. Some have Dillwig ahead of Llewellyn. They're both not getting in, so whoever's elected first is going to eliminate the other from consideration, in my opinion. Ox Emerson played for the Portsmouth Spartans slash Detroit Lions from 1931 through 1937, and then played a single year for the NFL's Brooklyn Dodgers. Emerson was a dominant guard in the 1930s. He earned six consecutive first-team All-Pro nominations out of the eight years that he played on his way to becoming a member of the 1930s All-Decade team. 
That's the same number of first-team All-Pros as Hall of Famers Barry Sanders, Lou Kriegmer, Dudge Clark, and Jack Christensen. While with the Detroit Lions, he helped the defense to an astonishing 59 points allowed in 13 games. They had seven straight shutouts that season. He also helped the team to an NFL championship in 1935. On offense, he was part of the offensive line on a team that set a rushing record of 2,885 yards. That record stood for 36 years until the 1972 Miami Dolphins broke it by 75 yards. However, the Dolphins needed a 14-game season to break it, while the Lions set it with a 12-game season. For the coaches and contributors, we have Buddy Parker, who is at the top of Clark's list and near the top of my list. As Clark mentioned, Parker went 104, 75, and 9 in his professional career and won two championships with the Detroit Lions. He was also 3-1 and one in the postseason. Finally, he also won a championship as a player with the Lions. Clark Shaughnessy was an offensive and defensive innovator and is at the top of my list for the coaches and contributors category. He is known for establishing the modern T formation and adding motion pre-snap to help lure the defensive players in one direction or another to gain an advantage. He's also credited with creating the three wide receiver set on offense. On defense, he's created the blitzing defenses to counter the T formation and is also credited with creating the 5-3-3 defensive front. Combining his innovations with a quarterback like Sid Luckman made the Chicago Bears a formidable team during that time. Eddie Kotal is considered to be the first player scout when he was hired to that position by the Los Angeles Rams in 1946. As I mentioned during the interview, an argument can be made that Wellington Mara preceded Kotal by several years. He just didn't have the official title when he started with the New York Giants as Mara was officially the treasurer and assistant to the owner, his father, Tim Mara, starting in 1937. I think that the difference is that Coda was the first to travel the country evaluating players. Mara primarily relied on newspaper and magazine information, but Coda was a true road warrior when it came to scouting college players. That relationship that he built up with the colleges gave him an edge over the other teams. Kotal and Rams owner Dan Reeves are credited with being the first to do extensive evaluations of college players and to use telephones on draft day. However, the philosophy of drafting the best player available is where they probably have the biggest impact. This philosophy dictated that you take the best player regardless of what position it is and whether it's a need for the team. You still improve your team and possibly at depth, but you're not drafting specifically to fill a hole on your roster. He was also credited with looking outside of football for athletes, specifically looking at track and basketball for talent. When you're looking at trailblazing scouts, you have Lloyd Wells, who was a scout with the Kansas City Chiefs in the 1960s and was the first African-American person to be hired as a scout by a team. You also have Paul Patterson, who started with the Chicago Bears in 1967, and Hall of Famer Bill Nunn with the Pittsburgh Steelers in 1968. Finally, let's talk about Bucko Kilroy. He spent 64 seasons in the NFL as a player, a coach, a scout, and an executive, which is second all-time to Wellington Mara. Kilroy helped the Philadelphia Eagles to two championships as a player before heading to their front office as a scout. He is credited with helping create the NFL scouting combine, as well as working with Gil Brandt of the Dallas Cowboys to create the system to make data-driven decisions on players based on detailed information. He helped revolutionize scouting as we know it today. That's all that we have for this week. Stay tuned to our social media channels to stay up to date on our episodes. You can find the links on the main page of this podcast. Thank you for listening to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. 
To learn more about the FLA, go to our website at www.football-learning-academy.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.